There's a line in that song that uh, is actually perfect for this text. That line said, To the God in need of nothing, empty-handed I rejoice. That's an incredible line that leads us into this text. This text is, a, is, again, we're in a series of Jesus' teaching. He's teaching in parables. And many have struggled with this parable. This is not an easy parable uh, for some to understand. Matter of fact, it's been said that this parable has caused people to lose their faith. That people have walked away from the faith because of this parable. One uh, famous person uh, in particular was a Caesar of Rome, a ruler in Rome. His name was Julian. He started office in 355 A.D. He was raised um, in a Christian, as a Christian, but then was considered an apostate. He left the faith. So he's actually known as Julian the Apostate. And it is actually this parable is one that he mentions in his writings that caused him to struggle with Christian, Christianity and Christians. And so today, uh, we're, we are in for a treat. You know, last time... Uh, Brandon preached back at uh, uh, Labor Day. He got like this really hard text. Last week, Brandon got to preach and he got a really easy text. And I laughed about it like the first time. And then I realized like I'm getting paid back today. And so, uh, no, in, in, all, in all seriousness, this has been a joy uh, to study this week, to think through. And I'm really excited to share it with you today. Uh, so, Starting uh, with our big truth this morning, here's what I think that we should walk away from this text with. This is the thing that we should walk away knowing as a church. And it's this, that God calls his servants to faithfully steward all that he has given them. God, God calls his servants, and, and listen, that's what Christians are. Christians are servants. Jesus came not to serve but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many he calls us in following him to be his servants and so jesus god calls his servants that he's called to faithfully steward all that he has given them and there's something else that's being said right there that everything that you have he has given you let's start reading in verse one he also said to the disciples there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do. So when I have removed when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, and How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager, manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fa fails, they may receive you into the internal dwellings. 
One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, we've got to realize what we're reading here. We're reading a parable. And when we look at Scripture, uh, we, we apply um, a science to reading Scripture. It's called hermeneutics, right? And so as we, we read Scripture, we take into account what it is that we're reading. Um, man, there, there are different genres in the Bible. There's law, there's uh, history, there's songs, there's poetry. And you guys know in our world today, you wouldn't try to interpret rap lyrics in some sort of civil code about how you can add on to your house the same. They both might equally be confusing, but the way you read them would be different, right? This is a parable. This is, this is a part of a literary feature that Jesus uses. Uh, it, they're colorful stories. That's what they are. They're colorful stories that use earthly images that we can see to help communicate to us these, these stories that have these heavenly meanings that we cannot see. So, put simply, a parable is a short story that conveys a greater truth. Now, one mistake that we often make when we read parables is that we try to read too much into them. Um, we, we talk about exegesis, exegeting from the text, drawing from the text. So often in parables, we read into the parables things that were not meant to, to be there. And so that's what gets us in trouble in reading parables and reading more into it. We think this is some sort of allegor, allegorical writing, some sort of code. And, and it's this code that we have to figure out. And if we can just figure out the code, we'll figure out what God really meant. It's not how God uh, designed his word. This is God's revelation to us, and he meant for us to be able to understand so much of it, right? This is not some special meaning that we're getting here. We should be able to clearly see this. Um, you'll see, you, as, you've, as you've read, you, you'll, you hear of the master commending his manager's shrewdness. And that's the stumbling block. It's like, how can the master uh, commend this what we look at and think this dishonesty. Now, uh, let's, let's figure it out. Let's dive in. Let's take it apart. I think you're going to see that it's not what you may be thinking. Starting in verse 1. Um, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man. Now, notice there is a theme about rich men Right, right now. It, it's happening. So last week when we talked about the, the, the parable of the prodigal son, uh, some call it the parable of the prodigal father, it probably really is the parable of the prodigal God, uh, it's, it's that, that, that father had wealth. You're going to go down. You're going to see in verse 14, right after this, that the Pharisees were lovers of money. They love wealth. They idolize it. The next thing down is the rich man in Lazarus, right? So there, there is, in his teaching, he's teaching us about money and wealth. So there was a rich man who had a manager. And I think for us to understand this, we have to understand the manager and what the manager's job was. When we read scripture, we often have to overcome 
uh, context. The difference in geography, uh, so it's not that, you know, this isn't written in America. This was written in uh, uh, the, the Middle East. This was uh, Eastern mindset. There's the, the, the distance of time. This was written a long time ago, 2,000 years ago. It's a different culture. And so when we hear manager, you know, we think, I don't know, Walmart manager. Uh, maybe some of you are in management positions. We think of maybe middle management. Um, we think about in management, who do you have always looking over your shoulder? The person who manages you, right? It's like this chain of management. But you know, this is actually uh, something that we don't have to travel that far back to get. Matter of fact, uh, we have managers that, that exist and work in this very nature uh, living amongst us. And I happened to meet one yesterday. I met a manager yesterday. I made a new friend. Uh, that shouldn't surprise you. I like to make friends. His name is TJ, and he is the manager of the Lazy D Ranch. And if you've ever been on Pingree Park Road, heading up to uh, the, the camp that our college students, what's the name of that camp? The Lutheran Sky, Sky Camp. Sky what? Sky Ranch, thank you. Sky Ranch, right, right before you get there, is the Lazy D Ranch. The Lazy D Ranch is actually owned by uh, the, the Morgan family. Bill Morgan was one of the presidents of CSU. Um, he was actually one of the presidents who, who managed, this is funny that we're talking about management, he managed CSU really well under his leadership. It exploded. It grew and grew and grew. And if you've been in, there's, I think there's two libraries on CSU's campus. One of them is the Morgan Library. It is named after Bill Morgan. And so when he was CSU president at some point, he bought this ranch up on Pingree Park Road. He passed away, I believe, in 2006. Uh, but the family still runs the ranch. They live in, it says two of the sons live in Boulder. Uh, one lives in Arizona, from what I read. And so they are away. They are not here. But my new friend TJ manages the ranch. So what does that mean? Uh, well, I was talking to him. I was asking all sorts of questions about fences and the fire and how many head of cattle they run and uh, well, how many cattle that can they have per acre and how many horses they have. And he's got dogs. So they've got this whole working ranch. Now, this ranch isn't making the Morgan family any money. I'd almost promise you that. It's this legacy ranch. I'd almost promise you that those, those boys and Bill Morgan himself had no clue of really how to run a ranch. So what did they do? They hired somebody to run it. So that they could, they could have that ranch, they could keep the legacy, they can go up there and visit a, a few times a year. It's important to the legacy of the family, they've got the ranch. But guess who knows how to run the cattle? Guess who knows how to take care of the horses? Guess who knows? My new friend TJ, right? That's who knows how, how to do it. He knows how to manage it. And so, the rich man, the rich family, has to trust the manager. They don't have eyes on it. I promise you, this winter when it's like you know, negative 10 degrees and the wind's blowing 40 miles an hour, they're going to be not up there checking on cattle, right? They're not going to be doing that. The manager is going to be doing it. So the manager is trusted to look after the affairs. When it's time to take their cattle to market, they raise, they raise about 20 steers a year, he told me. When they take them to market, do you think they're going, hey, you've got to get this, this, and this per pound? You've got to make sure that you're doing this. No, they don't care. They don't know. They just want him to be honest, they just want him to do the very agreement that they've made. And I'm sure that they're benevolent and kind and good to him, right? So that's, that's the idea of, of a manager. You've got a manager. You've got a rich man who does not have his hands in these affairs. He's entrusting somebody to take care of and steward this for him. 
And then what happens? Charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. He was wasting his possessions. When you're a manager, you are looking after those things as if they are your own. But you have to realize they are not my own. They are my bosses. Right? They are my managers. These are entrusted to me. I must steward them well. And so, the rich man, he, he calls him and he says to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management. This would be uh, the, the ledger, right? The, the, the place where all the notes were kept. Turn in, your, turn in your management of your account, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. Here's my first big idea. Is we must have a realistic view of our desperate situation. When we're reading this parable, what we're going to see is this manager has a realistic view. And what is his view? I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm ashamed to beg. And so what is he saying? I have no way to make money. When I lose this job, my option is that these men, I don't, I don't know what the digging might have been. It could have been a mine, whatever. Like I, I'm physically not able to pull this off, and I'm too prideful to go and beg. I don't want to be a beggar out on the street. So... Here, here you have this, he has a realistic view of his desperate situation. He asks a really important question. What shall I do? What am I going to do? You know, he's called shrewd. He, there, there's an astuteness to him, right? When, when we sometimes get, some people, when we get into situations... And, and we don't know what to do, we panic. And we fail to come up with a plan, and we sit there in, in nothing, right? We, we have no plan. Matter of fact, when I meet with people, and I, I have, we have people come and beg, and, and, and they're asking for something, and I always want to meet with them. I always want to, to hear them out. I want to see how we can truly help them, right? I truly want to help them. They typically have no plan. They typically do not understand. Over and over and over, when I meet and counsel with people, they don't understand the desperation of their situation. This manager knew that if he was going to eat, he was going to have to do something. If he was going to provide for his family, he was going to have to do something. As we read this parable, as you hear me state the the big truth this morning, that uh, God calls his servants to faithfully steward all that he has given them. Here, here's what I want you to, to know. You came into this world with nothing. And you will leave this world with nothing. Every man had appointed for him a day in which he was born and a day in that which he will die. And we spend that moment in between either one of two ways. It's living for the day, living for the world, accruing things, uh, uh, building riches, building our little, I often call them cardboard kingdoms, or we can live this life thinking about the next life. We can live this life for eternity. What happens when the day comes and nothing we have here goes with us? Here's our 
desperate situation is that the things that we accrue cannot buy our eternity. They cannot save us. Here's the lie that we as Americans believe. We believe that the things that we buy with money, we believe that the money that we make will bring us happiness, will bring us joy. And so we believe this lie over and over and over. We we see wealth, we see wealth management, we accrue money, we, we go after things, we spend tons of our time and energy pursuing wealth, and, and we, we buy stuff, and we get it, and it doesn't bring us joy. And then what do we do? Well, what, well, I was wrong. What's the next thing that I must buy to bring joy? And over and over and over, we go through this process in life of thinking, this is what's going to bring me joy. This is what's going to bring me joy. This is what's going to make me happy. And over and over and over, it doesn't. Our desperate situation gets worse. Because all of a sudden, as we've, we've figured out, hey, we, we, the things that we're buying, the end of life, we look at our possessions and we turn and go, oh, wow, this, this did nothing. We then have to realize the, desperate, the desperateness in our situation is that now we feel like we've wasted life and we start thinking about the next life and realizing nothing I have can buy me favor with God. Now, this is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that while we are sinners, while we are broken, while we are, while we are in rebellion to God, while we have hatred in our hearts towards God, while we shake our fist at God and mock God, He still loves us. He still cares for us, and He still made a way for us. The good news of the gospel is this, that while we were still sinners, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to the earth to live a perfect and spotless life. This would be the King of all kings, the King who had nothing. Right? The king that did not have worldly wealth. The king that didn't come in fancy robes, living in a, a palace in his kingdom with cities with walls. Right, with this, with, with this kingdom around him. That's not what he did. Matter of fact, what does the Bible say? Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He had barely anything, yet this is the king. And he comes and he lives this life a perfect life without sin, without hatred in his heart towards God, without rebellion in his heart towards God. He, he lived this perfect life. And he came, God sent him in order to pave the way for us, to make a way for us, to reconcile us unto himself. And so he who knew no sin goes to the cross, takes on our sin. He died for you and I. His death paid the price for our sin. The, the debt that we could not pay, that we did not have enough money to pay. The death that, that our, the substitutionary death, there's no way that we could put forward some, some sort of payment to pay the price for our death. He came and he paid that. And the, the Bible teaches us that he was crucified on the cross for our sins. That they drove those nails in his hands. That they hung him on the cross. That they placed that crown of thorns on his head. That he died. 
from asphyxiation. He, he suffocated on that cross. He was put into a grave. He was in that grave for three days. And here's the, the miraculous work that God did as he took his son as the substitutionary death for our sin that on the third day he raised his son from the dead. He breathed life back in him and the dead man got up and walked out of the grave. And the good news of the gospel is that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. That those who believe in the Lord Jesus will be saved. The desperation of our situation is paid for in Jesus. Jesus makes it no longer desperate for us when we believe in him. And so, here's that beautiful line from that song, To the king in need of nothing. The king that did not have to come do what he did came and he did it because he loves us. And so empty-handed we rejoice. So we must be like this manager who realizes the desperation of our situation. You and I must know that we need Jesus. So he says, I've decided what to do so that when I am removed... From management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to them, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do I owe you? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to them, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Here's the next big idea. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Now, that's not scripture. All right? So often in my big ideas, I like to use scripture. And that one sounds like you've heard that one before, right? You've heard desperate times call for desperate measures. So you quickly could go, maybe that's scripture. That's not scripture. Um, but I do believe it's, it's true. Desperate times, when, when times are tough, you have to get going. And I want you to see what he did here. Um, there, there was a desperation, and when we're desperate, when the, when the clock is ticking, there's a need to move fast, right? And here he knows this, is being, this, is, this job is being removed for him, and so he thinks quickly, and he acts quickly, and he goes to them, and he says, how much do you owe? Here, quickly, write this down, and write it in your own hand. You be the one who writes down, this is, this is what, what I paid. And then he's called shrewd. A shrewd person is, uh, by definition, able to understand and judge a situation quickly and to use the understanding to their own advantage. Now, as, as I've studied this passage and I've studied, studied the text, um, I think in, in cultural terms, for us to put this in, in context, like if we think shrewd and we think intelligent, and we kind of blend those two things together, it may help us more understand. Like, just this was, this was pretty smart, Right? There was a shrewdness to it. There's sometimes when my boys do things, and there are things that like, are, are clearly um, not things that I approve of, and they're, they're, they're playing me, they're playing the game, right? They're, they're using something that I said maybe against me, and I, I, I don't, don't, I don't like approve of it, but I'm like, that was pretty shrewd. You know, that was, that was pretty smart. Now, don't flatter yourselves. I also had a dog that did this, right? I had this, we had this dog named Penny, and she was shrewd. She was a cunning dog. Like, I, sometimes she would do something, and I would like, I, I cannot stand you, dog, but that was smart. Like, how you figured out that 
incredible. So don't flatter yourselves too much, right? That, that's this, in his desperation, he uses his shrewdness. Now, here's, what, here's the point. Here's what he did. These debtors owe his master. But if he provides a discount, then they'll owe him. That's, that's what he's doing. I think that the, the way Jesus is telling this story, that this manager had the authority to do the things that he did. I think under a normal circumstance, if somebody came and said, hey, I can't pay, I can only do this much, can you take it? He probably had the authority to go, well, I could get 80% or I could get 0%. I think I'm going to take 80%. I think in his management, he, he had the flexibility to, to do that. Um, man, I don't know if you, you've ever had a debt service uh, call, co- somebody call and collect, you know, to collect a debt and um, I haven't, but this is how it happens, that they call and they'll say, hey, uh, you owe this, we're either going to have to take you to court and fight you to get it, and it's going to cost us more money, so we'll just cut our losses and we'll take this amount. Right? There's a shrewdness to that. There's a, there's a sensibility in management. You've got to cut your losses and you take it. And so I think he did, the, the rich man, he did not approve of what his, his ex-employee had done, but he is certainly admired his foresight and his astuteness. He looks, at, he looks at the shrewdness of it, and it's an admirable thing. Now, as we read this parable, here's what we need to know. Desperate times call for desperate measures. We live in desperate times. Now, that's not to say that somebody living 100 years ago also didn't live in a desperate time. I want you to understand, this is part of the Christian living in the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is advancing. And we have a promise, not just that Christ would be raised from the dead, but that one day he will will go to heaven and one day he will return, and in his return he is going to make all things new. And we are waiting on the return of Christ. So the Christian lives with this forward-looking mentality, and we're looking at the world around us going, we live in desperate times, and the kingdom of God is the answer. The kingdom is unfolding here. And so for us, as people who must... uh, Realize that the, our desperate situation, realize that we must take desperate measures. What are those desperate measures that we ought to take? What is our shrewdness? And I'm going to tell you this. <laughs> Quickly and as shrewdly as possible, you should run to Jesus. You should, with everything in you, drop what you're having and follow him. You should follow Jesus with everything that you have. Which brings up the next point. He says this. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the internal, eternal dwellings. And so, here's what I would say when we look at this text. If worldly men are shrewd in taking care of worldly matters, how much more shrewd should spiritual men be in taking care of spiritual matters? And so that's the next big idea. Spiritual men 
must be shrewd in taking care of spiritual matters. We've got to be shrewd in how we live. We've got to be shrewd in the accounts that we manage. He's, his example, the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I, I look around, and we, we look at the world, and we can see some, some things in the world that are, that are incredibly creative and innovative. And uh, we see uh, uh, a levity, uh, a weightiness to the, to the things of the world as they handle. Maybe it's the political world. Maybe it's the business world. Maybe it's uh, uh, our uh, public or secular school system, right? There's a, a shrewdness in it. They're, they're thinking through it. There's an intelligence in how they do it, right? And it's a worldly matter. At the end of the day, I don't know if y'all know this or not. Let y'all in on a little secret. Apple won't be in heaven. Twitter, X, whatever it's called, won't be in heaven. Walmart won't be in heaven, right? Like those companies that were built by men, whatever those things are, they will perish. And so worldly men are shrewd. They're, they're smart in their Accounting, they're smart in their understanding. They're smart in their management of their businesses, the most successful businesses. And, and Jesus' point he's making is like, look, look at these men. They're shrewd in their accounting of worldly things. How much more spiritual should you be in these spiritual matters? Should we not be shrewd in our spiritual world? Should we not be using our intelligence that we're given for the kingdom of God? And he brings a point. He brings wealth back into this. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So that when it fails, notice that. Unrighteous wealth, when it fails. Unrighteous wealth, which is, which is the wealth that we will not take to the kingdom of God with us, right? Right? It, it's going to fail. So use that unrighteous wealth. Use what you have to make eternal friends. That, that, now, now, this is where like a lot of people wrestled with this in this parable. What does eternal friends mean? And that they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So what, what does this mean? Well, I believe that he's, he's teaching us uh, some people have interpreted friends as um, God, that God is, you know, I'm a friend of God. He calls me a friend. I don't know if you've ever heard that song. It actually comes from Scripture. Um, that God is the friend. Other people think, you know, it's actually angels who would be the ones who welcome them into their, friends that would welcome them into their eternal home. I'm kind of in the camp that it's, it's God and his angels and the people that are in heaven. It is the, the kingdom of God. These, these are, this is the eternity that matters. So use your wealth shrewdly, intelligently, for the kingdom of God. Now, what do we know? We know that you can't buy your way into heaven. You know that, that tithing, giving away money, giving away wealth, that doesn't earn you any favor with God. But we do know that because what God has worked in our hearts, it changes who we are, and it makes us generous people. And it makes us invest and invest wisely in things that will matter in a million years. And so, spiritual men must be shrewd in taking care of spiritual matters. We ought to manage 
our households. We ought to manage what God has given us. Listen to what he says, verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. So you can look at somebody and go, okay, they're faithful in little. I can trust them to give them more. They'll be faithful in much. And one who's dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. So the one who's not faithful with very little, I'm not going to give them a whole bunch. If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? Not, not these worldly riches, these unrighteous riches, but the true riches. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And so here's my next big idea. We must be faithful managers of what God has given us. We must be faithful managers. We don't want to be the dishonest manager. We want to be the faithful managers. Listen, I think, I think this very much has to do with our money. Uh, you know, people are like, why, why do you always preach on money? They say that in the church. They don't say that to me. Um, but here's, here's the reality. 15% of the parables are, have to deal with money. 30% of Jesus' teaching that Jesus taught has to deal with money. There, there's this reality that comes with our spirituality that our hearts are transformed and our money no longer has the same value to us that it once did. And now it's not to be used for our own personal gain or pleasure, but that of the kingdom of God. And so we must be faithful managers of what God has given us. You know, when we read this parable and we think about money and we think about the rich... There's probably not a person in this room that goes, I, I'm one of the rich. I'm, I'm rich. But do you know that you actually are? As Americans, we make up 4.23% of the world's population. But yet we hold 31% of the world's wealth. Is that not incredible to think about? Our little country, and by the way, some of you are shocked to figure out that Americans only make up 4% of the population. You thought, well, I thought we were bigger than that. I thought we were like 70%. Uh, no, we're, we're small in the world, 4.23%, but yet we have 31%, almost 10 times over the percent we take up in the world. And so you go, well, okay, there's rich Americans. We know there's just billionaires everywhere. There's millionaires everywhere, and those billionaires, they ought to just be taxed, and everything will be all right. The median household income in the United States right now is $71,000. Now, I have to believe that most family units, husband and wife combined in our church, they're, they're probably most, make more than $71,000 a year. And so if your family unit makes more than $71,000 a year, that puts you in the top 4% of the richest people in the world You're, you're, you're a top four percenter, just not in America, right? You're a top four percenter in the world. As an individual, not including household, if you make more than $60,000 a year yourself, you're a top one percenter. You make more 
than 99% of the people in the rest of the world. So when we read this parable, as rich Americans, we have to look at ourselves and go, we must steward what we have for the kingdom of God. Christians in America hold a ton of Christian wealth in, in, in the world. So if, if we know that it takes money to plant churches, it takes money to send missionaries, it, it takes money to send students to seminary, it takes money to do humanitarian aid and relief in the world, right? When, when disasters happen and Christians come in and, and put forth their money, you know, we think about even, even in America, like the, the fires that happen in, in Hawaii, you know who's still there cleaning that up? Sin Relief, the, the, our, our partner, they're, they're there. The president of the Southern Baptist Convention, is Bart Barber, he's in Hawaii right now serving with, with uh, the cleanup crews. Do you know when, when wells need to be dug, when clean, clean water needs to be had? Who, who's, who's, who's digging wells? Who's feeding the poor? Well, there's other people in the world who are doing it. But let me tell you something. There's a whole bunch of Christians who are. We're commanded to. We're commanded to take care of the poor. We're commanded to do benevolence ministry. Right? Sending, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Planting churches. Doing the ministry of the kingdom of God. It takes money. And Christians in America have most of it. So we ought to steward it well. I was reading, reading a, an article. This is about Bill Gates and one of Bill Gates' initiatives. Now, Bill Gates not a believer. Uh, very, very wealthy, but has been very, very benevolent. He's a philanthropist. He, he gives. Uh, one of the things that, that he realizes that he needs to do in these rural cities and villages is to put in infrastructure, and that infrastructure being um, sewage. And, and I got to thinking about it, and I was like, you know what? I remember one of, the, one of the biggest shocks to me on the mission field is that I was in this village in, the remote, in a remote part of Brazil. You had to get there by boat, and they had indoor plumbing, kind of. You would go, and you would use the bathroom, and in order to flush the bathroom, you'd take a bucket of water, and you'd pour it just like that, and it would make it flush, just like when you hit the handle and water flushes in, it makes it flush. And so you would walk out the door of this, the, the, this little house and you would walk down to the uh, backwaters of the Amazon and you would scoop up water and you would take that in when you would go to the bathroom. You would go to the bathroom and then you would pour it. Well, I had a problem. I, I, I did that, but it didn't all flush. And so I had to go back and scoop up water. And I get over to the water and guess what? The sewage is running out of a pipe and dropping into the water right over there. And so what I realize is this water that these kids are swimming in and playing with is their own sewage water. We don't live in that. That is not our world. The poorest of the poor here don't live in that. And so there's this, there's this level that comes for us that there is those who have been given much or it's required much. Those who have been faithful little need to be faithful with a lot. And by, by all means, we have a lot. And so I think this is what this means. That we must be wise. Listen, you, you'll, you'll hear people say, 
money is the root of all evil. But that's not right, is it? It's the love of money is the root of all evil. It's the idolatry. We're going to talk about that in a second. The serving two masters. And so it's, it's not for us that, okay, money is bad. No, it's that how we, what we do with our money can be bad. It's that we create an idol out of our money. And so we must steward it well. You know, the difference in, in, in what they say a poor man and a rich man is that a poor man works for money and a rich man makes his money work for him. Right? They say that's, that's so often the, the difference. And, and good businessmen, like the one who's not doing well, he's working for his money, but the one who's doing super well has made his money work for him. I think as Christians, we ought to make our money work for us. That in, in, in the eyes of the kingdom of God, that we ought to steward it well. I think that means that, that we ought to be people who invest wisely. I think that means people that, that we ought to work hard, that we ought to be diligent, that we ought to take care of our uh, accounts, that, that we shouldn't live in massive debt. The average American has uh, like close to $8,000 a year in credit card debt. I don't think that should be true for the Christian. I don't think we should, we should live paycheck to paycheck. I think we should use wise principles. I think we should have that three to six month emergency fund. I think that we should... We should budget. We should know where our money is going. We should look at our accounts and and see where are we wasting money. Where could we cut back? Where could we trim? Some of us need to go, hey, uh, that that car payment's a little excessive. I don't have to drive that. Some of us go, man, maybe we should not eat out every night of the week. Maybe, hey, here's one. Just we should maybe drive to the fast food place, or ride our bike there, whatever it takes, and not do Uber Eats and pay like 15 extra dollars on top of it, right? I just think we ought to be wise with our money. I think in, in America, we've got a huge gambling problem right now, especially among young men. Sports gambling is huge. It is stupid. Gambling works because people are stupid. And so don't do stupid things with your money. Don't gamble your money away. Oh, I know I can make money. Everybody says that, right? That's, that's why gambling works. It's because everybody says that. Like, don't gamble your, your money away. Don't spend your money on, on things that are just not going to make you happy. I think how you teach your kids how to ma- ma- manage money, the, the shrewdness, that means not buying your kids everything all the time, right? Denying oneself. It's just being a wise steward. It's... It's, it's paying off debt. It's investing in good things. I think it's, I think it's tithing. And I think tithing is an Old Testament principle. Uh, in the Old Testament, we see them give away, uh, give 10%. It was like a, they're, they're, they're tithing it. If it, they had you know, 10 bushels of corn, they gave one, uh, they gave one as, a, as a tithe, as some sort of uh, payment. That's Old Testament. New Testament, Jesus paid that. But I think for us, as, as, just, uh, as a principle, to go, you know what? Us giving away money, investing in spiritual things, helps us from having our hearts attached to it. Now, there's something to note here. That when we manage things well, uh, when, when we manage things well, things get, we, we get given more. I believe this is, this is a spiritual principle that comes when that you manage the things that you have well the Lord blesses it and my sister's church they get people to start tithing I'm not saying I agree with this but they, they, they do a money back guarantee 
And they say, if, if you tithe for six months, and at the end of six months, you want that money back or any part of that money back, we will give it back to you, no questions asked. And there's a prosperity piece to this church, okay? I want you to understand that, right? There's a prosperity piece. If you give, the Lord's going to bless it and multiply it back. That's kind of the thing that's preached. And so my sister, my sister started giving, and she was telling me about this. She started, and uh, it wasn't long ago that I said, so how's that going? She goes, man, I can't afford not to give. That's the right attitude. You're right. You can't afford not to give. You can't afford to be a dishonest manager. She didn't ask for her money back. Right? She said, this, this investment is worth it. And this is why. No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Here's my next big idea. The greatest thing that you can do with your life is to serve God as your master. Listen, money makes a horrible master. It is going to let you down. God and money are two competing masters. Serving one means disobeying the other. Loving one means hating the other. Making friends by worldly wealth. This is a call for us to submit our finances, the entirety of the things that God has given us to the will of God and his gospel purposes in the world. It means blessing those in need by being faithful stewards of not our money, but our master's money. Steward things well for the kingdom of God. Father, we love you. And Lord, I pray that we would be shrewd, that we would be astute, that we would be intelligent, in our dealing with the things that you've given us to manage. Lord, that, that we would realize the desperation of our situation, that we have nothing apart from the grace of God. That we would be a thankful people, that we would be a people who loudly proclaim and sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. That we would, we would realize that the blessings we have are things that, that come for you. And so may we steward them well. Lord, I, I pray that we would be people who steward our entire lives well. That our lives would not be lived for worldly pleasures and worldly things, but for the kingdom of God. For your glory and for our good. Lord, I pray that you'd move and work in our hearts today that you'd smash idols in our hearts today, that we would turn to you and trust you with the things that we have today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing a song of response.